This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. There is no doubt that the president of the United States is considered to be the most powerful, important leadership position in the world. That person deals with so many issues that no other people in the country ever have to deal with. And while there may be many questions about the current leadership coming from the White House, there are great examples in American history of presidents who have had to deal with a variety of issues, personal and professional, and have managed to come out as tremendous leaders in this country. Presidential historian and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Doris Kearns Goodwin looks at four examples of such men in her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, and it is a great honor to have her on the show right now. Doris, thank you for your time today. By the way, I am somebody who loves history, and this is a phenomenal look at these four presidents. Hooray. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you. And I will say, though, and you have talked about this in other interviews you've given about this book, there is a little bit of irony in the timing of the release of this book, is there not? Well, you know, when I started it five years ago, I had no idea how relevant it would be to be studying these four leaders who lived in turbulent times. Because people keep asking me, are these the worst of times ever? And at least I can point back to what it was like for Lincoln when he took office and 600,000 soldiers are about to die. The country split into the economic situation and the social situation at the Industrial Revolution was even more fraught in terms of the gap between the rich and the poor and the new inventions that were making people feel the country was changing too fast under Teddy than it is under Trump. Obviously, Roosevelt comes in with the Depression and and LBJ taking hold when the assassination of JFK has wondered making people wonder what's going on in the world. And they all had the strength to bring us through those situations. So it it gives me hope about history and reassurance that we can remember that. When you look at at these four gentlemen, are there some commonalities in their leadership that that you saw from each one of them? Well, you know, they're all different in one way. I mean, they obviously come from really different backgrounds. Yep. I mean, both Roosevelt's come from a privileged, wealthy background, and Abraham Lincoln endured enormous poverty, and LBJ experienced sporadic hard times. They're different in temperament, but they do have certain kinds of, I'd say, family resemblances in terms of leadership. They they kept growing through loss and adversity. They they had resilience. They eventually developed humility, even if they started without it. <laughs> they knew how to talk to people with stories. You know, they built teams that um, were strong-minded people who could disagree with them. They had the emotional intelligence to deal with those teams, and those words might not have been known then, but we know now. They somehow were able to connect to the people um, directly that were their constituents and control negative emotions. All these things shine a light on today, I think, right? And. and they all had an ambition that was larger than themselves, eventually. That's you, the key thing. You obviously know uh, President Johnson uh, pretty well uh, from the from your days uh, in and around Washington and being there uh, with, with his staff. Give us your, your memories uh, of President Johnson and, and what made him so unique as a leader for the country. And obviously, as you mentioned, coming out uh, of the assassination of President Kennedy. Well, I think what happened is, excuse me, that he was immediately aware that he had to grasp the reins of power right away. He took it from like a cattle, when the cattle are running around and you can't get them to go in a straight line, you have to sort of take the lead. Someone has to lead on the horse to get the cattle to go forward. And he made a really important decision right then, that he would make his first decision 
to be making the civil rights bill of JFK, which was stuck in the Congress with little hope it could get out, knowing it would break a filib- need a filibuster breaking to do it. He made that his first priority. And he was told by his advisors, you can't do this. Your, ele- your election is 11 months away. And if you do this, you're going to not get anything through Congress. And you're going to expend the coinage of the presidency. And he says, what the hell is the presidency for? Right. And, you know, for all the problems that Lyndon Johnson has and the war in Vietnam will always be cutting his legacy in two, his leadership on civil rights. He was the right man with the legislative wizardry to get that bill through Congress, to get Republicans on his side. And at the end of his life, when he worried about would he be remembered for anything positive, civil rights will be it. Well, and it's a unique dynamic that you bring up there is the fact that uh, on on issues of national importance, that, that President Johnson did have an unbelievable grasp uh, of, of things uh, you know that needed to be done, whereas on international policy, it was a little bit different, correct? Correct. I mean, what happened is he had a vision of what he wanted to achieve right from the start, even that first night when he's watching the Kennedy assassination on the television with his aides. There's three of them in a bed. It's a wonderful scene to imagine, yep. and they're all watching the television. He outlined that he knew he wanted to get a tax cut through to get the economy going. Then he could get the civil rights through. Then he would get voting rights through. Then he wanted aid to education. And then he finally wanted to get old Harry Truman's Medicare bill through. And he had a vision that went larger domestically in terms of Medicare and immigration reform, PBS, NPR, et cetera. But on foreign policy, what he was simply trying to do was not accomplish something with a positive goal. He was trying to prevent failure which is at the very beginning, it's an impossible situation. So he's told, unless you put more troops in here, the war is going to fail. The failure will be on you. So he adds troops, and then he adds more troops, and then he adds more troops. And he doesn't really allow the American people to know what he's doing. He wants to keep the great society going so that he can have his domestic programs and the foreign policy thing on the back corner. You can't do that in a matter of war and peace. People have to know what they're doing. They need a goal. And so all the opposite qualities of his domestic leadership, unfortunately, were there in foreign policy and in Vietnam. Doris Kearns Goodwin joining us, the author of the book Leadership in Turbulent Times. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You know, Abraham Lincoln is is always a, a unique individual to look at because of speaking of times of war. Uh, the fact that he had to deal with the, the internal strife between the North and the South and the the, the ideas behind uh, the racial issues that were going on in the country and freeing the slaves. No, I mean, I think what he brought into the presidency was, number one, resilience, because that had been part of his life all the way along. You had to be resilient to go through those early unions. Um, losses, you know, terrible losses in the early part of the war. Yeah. And yet he kept believing it in part because he had come through so much himself. And even the first time he ran for office and he lost, he, he warned the people that he would try five or six more times until it would be really disgraceful. And then he promised he wouldn't try again. So he, he knew that from his personal life. But he also had an extraordinary empathy so that even as he prosecuted the war, he understood where the Southern people were coming from. He was trying, even at the start, to make sure that when it was all over, they could come back together as a union. That second inaugural is the most beautiful example of that. You know, the sin of slavery was shared by both sides. He said once the North had won the war, um, and both sides read the same Bible, both prayed to the same God. Neither's prayers were fully answered. And then with malice toward none and charity for all, let us bind up the nation's wound. He had 
You know, he, had, he was merciless when he had to con- prosecute the war, but he was merciful. He would pardon soldiers. He was patient. He was persevering. And, of course, he had a gift for language that gave that struggle meaning, which probably no one else could have done. In, in, He's an extraordinary character. In part because even with all that, all that division, and you kind of allude to it a second ago, that we were all citizens of the United States. Uh, we were all Americans at that point. Absolutely. I mean, that's what's still hard to imagine, what it was like when he first takes office. And, and the country is literally split apart. Yeah. And there's another Confederate capital, survival Washington. And he said later that if he had known what he would face during those first months in office, he wouldn't have thought he could have lived through it. So that shows us how intense that time was. And you have to have his sad sense of melancholy that got him through it, but lightened by his extraordinary humor, um, which he said whistled off his sadness. I had no idea until I really spent so much time with him how funny he would be. I knew he'd be a great statesman to live with because it's about 10 years and now this additional five years I've been living with him. And I, I, I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. Hey, we're talking with Doris Kearns Goodwin, the book that she has uh, put together, and it's a phenomenal uh, work called Leadership in Turbulent Times. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. You know, with FDR, uh, I, I mean, obviously part of what he is marked by is the Great Depression and, and the impact that that had on this country. But again, to, to a degree like, like Lincoln, he had to have the understanding of, obviously, as president, the greatest good for the country, but also coming out of a time where the people were, were hurting significantly, not in, in the fashion of a war at that period of time, but from an economic, uh, an economic collapse that we saw. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the case study that I do on FDR is to use him as an example of turnaround turnaround leadership. Um, LBJ is visionary, and, and Lincoln is transformative, and Teddy is crisis management. I've been giving lectures to business groups for these last 10, 20 years, so it was fun to really try and learn that literature and figure out how these guys fit into it. But in his case, when he comes in, the entire financial system has collapsed. He finally has to call a bank holiday to close all the banks so he can figure out how to reopen them with an emergency banking bill that will shore up the weaker banks and let the stronger ones go forward. But most importantly, even when he goes and gives his inaugural address, his main concern is he has to give confidence back to a very badly frightened people, many of whom thought not having a job was their fault. So what he's able to tell them is this is the system that's at fault, and we are going to take action to make that system fairer. And, and we're going to do it. And if I don't get the Congress to go with me, I'm going to take executive powers to do it. And just of his optimism and his confidence in that one speech along thousands of telegrams come into the White House, thousands of letters saying, OK, we're going to go with you because you are there. That's the mystique of leadership. I think that you can project your own optimism and confidence onto a people. And then he could start taking the action. And then after he takes the turnaround actions, he has to then systematically figure out what went wrong, what had to be changed in the relationship between the government and the and the business community. What was it that, that made Teddy Roosevelt so unique for you? I think it's his energy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's unbelievable. He's a fiery character. I keep thinking if one of these people had to be president today, his would probably be the most likely because the, the situation he faced after McKinley was assassinated when the economy, as I say, had been so shaken up at the turn of the 20th century, was so much like the situation that faced us in the 2016 campaign. You had rural areas that felt cut off from cities. Yeah. You had lots of immigrants coming in and this threatening gap. And what he was able to do 
was to be a fiery proponent of the centrist philosophy. It was going to be a square deal for the rich and the poor, for the capitalist and the wage worker. And he became a cartoon figure. People loved his saying, speak softly and carry a big stick. He'd be good in the Twitter world today. You know, <laughs> don't hit until you have to. But then when you have to hit, hit hard. He even gave Maxwell House the slogan, good to the very last drop. But he was able to make people feel that he was both a Westerner and an Easterner. He had gone out west when he was in a big depression after his wife and his mother had died on the same house in the same place. And he got himself back as a different person out there, loving nature and becoming the conservationist man he became. They all went through terrible adversity and came out stronger at the other end. You know, let me ask you this. Do you think that that the there, I think, are at times a certain set of skills that a president obviously has to be able to have, and, and part of it is relying on uh, on the right people to be able to help you with that. Uh, I would venture a guess to say that that some of these skills, these uh, these abilities that all four of these gentlemen have are very much applicable f- uh, for the presidency in this day and age or in, in the future, not necessarily this White House with what we see going on back and forth, but the idea of the presidency even in the 21st century. Oh, I agree totally. In fact, I think they're applicable to leadership, whether it's in business or the nonprofit sector or in a community. It's got to do with human nature. I mean, when you think about what are these skills we're talking about, you know, to be able to control your negative emotions, to be able to let resentments go, to hire people because they'll be willing to argue with you, have the confidence to do that, and then to figure out how to meld them together in a team and inspire the best performance from that team. Or my favorite one that, that they all, except for Lyndon Johnson, were able to do is to find time to re- relax and replenish their energies. You know, we yeah. feel it's impossible today to do that. Our, our days are so frenzied and our, our email is with us. And yet our demands clearly pale in comparison to theirs. But Lincoln went to the theater more than 100 times during the Civil War. He was able to relax, he said, in a way that was the only way to get the anxiety away from him. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt exercised for two hours every afternoon. FDR has a cocktail party every night in the war where you can't talk about the war. You can gossip as long as he can forget the war for a few hours. So that's an important life lesson, I think, for all of us to find those moments when you can think and replenish your energy. Which is interesting, because if you think in recent history, you look at the presidents that we've had, they certainly come out looking quite a bit older than when they went in. Obviously, President Obama you know, didn't have any gray hair when he went in and is pretty much full of it. Same for President Bush and, and President Clinton as well. I think that's right. <clears throat> you know, and I think for it is true that you see a picture of Abraham Lincoln at the end that makes him look, you know, 40 years older than when he first went in. Yeah. But people who saw him at the end, in those last days of his life, he was really, he was probably more relaxed than he'd been ever before because he knew the war had been won. So there was this deep sense of fulfillment in him. On the last day of his life, he was probably happier than he had been in months or years. And his face showed it. But the picture himself actually showed the weathering enormously, as they all do. Doris Kearns Goodwin, the author of the book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. Again, your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. For for FDR, though, I, I mean, obviously, when you think about one of the things that that he had to deal with were health issues. And certainly yeah. the challenge of being a leader and presenting the presence and strength that he had to as 
the leader of this country while also dealing with all the, the personal health issues that he had to deal with. Yeah, there's no question that the polio that, you know, hit him when he was still in his 30s changed his, his being in a lot of ways. I mean, he'd been a natural politician before that. He was a handsome guy. He seemed to have led a charmed life. And then suddenly, months and years of striving lay ahead after he was paralyzed by polio, where he tried to walk on his own power. He wasn't sure that the leaders and the people in the country would accept him if they knew he was a paraplegic. So told that his upper body had the greatest likelihood of recovery, he would crawl around on the floor of his library for hours trying to strengthen his chest and shoulders. But I think the big thing that happened to him is when he went to Warm Springs and he creates that center for polio patients, and he makes himself vulnerable. He lets them see his withered legs, and they aim not simply to physically get better, but to spiritually feel better about themselves. So he restores the possibility of joy in their life. They play water polo and tag, and they have bridge tournaments and poker games and and cocktail hours at night. And then once he gets into the presidency, people see, they all knew, the people around him, what he had to go through to get in and out of his wheelchair, to even appear to be walking somewhere. And the strength and the courage that he exhibited, I think, gave an enormous sense of, of feeling for those around him. And then the country saw this strong, big-chested guy. Yeah. So it was an extraordinary. He learned to empathize with other people, I think, through that experience for, for, with whom fate had also dealt an unkind hand. How much do you think that, that Lyndon Johnson, and, and I think this is maybe this question answers itself, but, I mean, his time in the Navy, in the Naval Reserve, I mean, when you're a, a holding a position of command in any one of the branches of service, you are talking about a role that requires a significant amount of leadership. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, Teddy Roosevelt said that even within weeks of his taking command in the Spanish-American War yeah. of the group of soldiers he was with, he knew there were better horsemen there, there were better athletes there, better gunshot people, but he knew that he was their leader. And it's one of the things I think about the problem for the country today, because when we used to have Republicans and Democrats that got together and were willing to think about the country beyond their partisanship, you know, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, a lot of those leaders had been in World War II or the Korean War. So they knew what it was like to have a mission that they put ahead of class section or party lines. And I think that's one of the difficulties today. We just need to have that sense of a common mission. I sometimes wish that maybe we could have a national service program in addition to military service so that more people could know what it's like to work and with different people that you don't see every day. That's the problem. We have this sense of everybody being the other if you're in a rural or your urban area, if you're on the west or the east coast or in the yeah. middle. And we somehow have to figure that out. And, and military service and command, I think, makes a huge difference. I, I think, and I'll get back to that in one second, but obviously part of the problem I think a lot of people believe is, you know, no matter what you think of what's going on in the White House right now, we also have this dysfunction in Congress that just it just enhances the issues right now. Absolutely. And that's been going on for a while. It's been a long time since we've had a major bill that was able to attract bipartisan support. And you have the feeling that the congressmen aren't feeling a sense of overwhelming loyalty to the institution even of the Senate or the Congress. Rather, it's to the party and the particular part of the party they're in. So it's, it's a large thing. The only thing that gives me comfort is that FDR always used to say problems created by man can be solved by man. So I think with the combination of a, a different set of leaders 
and more people are getting active and getting involved in politics now perhaps than before, and with citizens taking an active role, all the changes in our society, even in, in my guise. I mean, Lincoln was called the liberator. He said, don't call me that. It was the anti-slavery movement that did it. Yeah. The progressive movement was critical for the two Roosevelt's, and the civil rights movement was critical for LBJ. So um, what's interesting about these leaders, too, I think, and you sort of hinted at it in your other question, is that they were right for the time. It's, yeah. When you get a big crisis, you have more likelihood of having a great leader, but you could also have a failure. Harry, you know, um, Hopkins, not Hopkins, he's my guy from FDR, <laughs> Herbert Hoover was there, right. and he had the Depression. He couldn't deal with it. McKinley didn't deal with the Industrial Revolution like Teddy did. I don't think JFK would have gotten the Civil Rights Bill through. And certainly, you know, so it's really interesting to see what are the skills and is it the man and the times or the times and the man? Those are the big questions. Is leadership born or made that I was playing around with in this book? I want to ask you about uh, finish up and ask you about Lincoln for a second, because, uh, you know, obviously, President Lincoln, as you mentioned, with what he did uh, with the country during the time of the uh, of the Civil War is incredible. But I, I mean, there is there's a good bit of of questions still, I think, to this day, of what could have been with President Lincoln had not it been for his untimely death. I know. It's the one question that you, that it's heartbreaking to ask. I mean, he, he himself understood that the deal of Reconstruction and bringing the South back into the Union was probably a harder leadership task than it was to conduct the war as commander-in-chief itself. Right. He knew how hard it would be to keep the freed blacks having their freedom, but yet bring the Southerners back into the Union. And yet there's no question that having won the war as he did, having developed his confidence enormously from the beginning of the presidency. I mean, at the beginning, the team members thought they were in charge of him. By the end, they all understood that he was their leader. The country understood his leadership by that point. He would have had a much better chance. And you wonder whether or not the problems that we faced in those decades afterwards, Jim Crow coming back and waiting until the 1960s to even undo segregation might have been, you know, much less, much less difficult if Abraham Lincoln had been there. Doris, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on this show today. And again, it is a phenomenal book. I love uh, reading and talking about history. Thank you very much for your time oh, today. Oh, you're my man. Thank you very much. Thank you, Doris. Yeah. And, and the next book, we absolutely will have you back again. It's a deal. Thank you. That was a really good conversation. I so appreciated it. Thank you, Doris. All the best. Okay, bye. Again, the book is Leadership in Turbulent Times. Doris Kearns Goodwin. Again, if you are somebody, and I am, that has an appreciation for American history, various elements of it, this is a pretty good look at, at four. And what's amazing is that she has written about these four presidents in the past. This is a great compilation of looking at a couple of elements of their presidency, specifically leadership that makes Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, and Lyndon Johnson very, very unique leaders in this country. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.